0: This episode of The Orthodox Conundrum deals with sensitive topics and uses explicit language. Listener discretion is advised.
1: What I'm trying to do, and I say this every time, is I'm trying to fit in an hour and a half what these women never learned. And I can't do that. And the truth is, I constantly stop and I say, what questions do you have? And they look so bewildered that they even say, I don't really know even what to ask. And some of it's because they don't have a point of reference, they don't know, and sometimes they'll ask after, but it's really, it's shock. And it's, wait, do we really talk about this? Am I really supposed to be talking about this? Am I really supposed to be asking you these questions? I don't have a frame of reference for this area of my life to be able to ask a question, uh, to be able to engage in a conversation.
0: I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Two weeks ago, I hosted a panel discussion with Rabbi Moshe Simkovich, Yuhatet Halacha Tova Warburg-Sinensky, and Olivia Friedman about the need for a course in yeshiva high schools that offers a frank and important presentation of a Jewish sexual ethic. At Olivia Friedman's recommendation, I am presenting part two today, where I speak with Bracha Rutner and Adira Batwinnik. We talk about some of the consequences that result from a lack of such education and what more needs to be done, everywhere from elementary school all the way through kala and Khatan classes. We'll get to this important conversation shortly. First, please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish Coffee House team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com, that's jchpodcast.com, to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. Rachel Rettner is a passionate head of school at Central, Yeshiva University High School for Girls, and teaches Gemara. Ms. Ruttner also serves as the Yozat Halacha at the Kemp Mill Synagogue in Silver Spring, Maryland, combining her passion for helping others and her commitment to halakha. As a graduate of Stern College for Women and Nishmat's Karen Ariel Women's Halachic Institute in Jerusalem, with a master's degree in education administration from St. John's University, and having done graduate work in Talmud from Hebrew University, she is devoted to educating the next generation of young women. Adira Lautman-Batwinik has been an active leader in each community she has lived in. She brings her passion for mental health to Jewish children, especially young Jewish women, in much of her work. Her core mission is to allow children and young adults to develop confident, healthy relationships with themselves, with God, and one day with their spouse. After graduating with her master's in social work, Adira worked at Yachad New York, JBFCS Break Free Clinic, and most recently at Berman Hebrew Academy as a guidance counselor. In the summers, she works at Campstone, serving as the director of the Yachad Vocational Programme. Since moving to Kemp Mill in 2018, she has organized programs with at Bracha Rutner. I was honored to have both of them on the show today. Bracha Rutner and Adira Batwinik, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: About two weeks ago, I spoke with Rabbi Moshe Simkovich, Olivia Friedman, and Yoetet Halakha Tova Warburg-Sinensky about the necessity for a course, or the supposed necessity for a course on intimacy and sexuality, for high school students. So as a preliminary matter, before we get into going beyond that particular idea, could you each describe how you feel about a potential course like that? Rachel, we'll start with you.
1: So I see a tremendous amount of value in having a course like this. Uh, I can speak a little bit from my own experience that I actually, in elementary school, had a course uh, by two therapists and social workers in my school. Uh, where we really didn't talk so much about halacha, but we really talked about communication and just different parts of intimacy. And I think for me at such a young age, it really has helped form my own perspective and a really healthy perspective towards intimacy and a real comfort, obviously within a in and modest fashion about intimacy. And teaching in high school and being a halacha. I have continued to see and to understand that value of having intimacy conversations with our students, really having a curriculum. Different ages are different areas of focus are important to understand students developmentally. What they need in ninth grade is very different than what they need in 12th grade. And to start with some foundations about communication around understanding their body parts, about hygiene, Uh, about feeling good about themselves and building their confidence towards, you know, more challenging conversations, I
2: really see tremendous value.
0: That's very interesting. There's a lot there and I want to come back to some of it. First, I want to hear, Adira, what you think about this idea of a course.
2: I am so supportive. Uh, Having, I I don't feel so far away from being in high school, although in reality, I I am. Uh, (laughs) Join the club. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Through my own personal experience, as a Orthodox young woman and now as an adult, I wish that I had had these resources at my fingertips. And I think Bracha and I both have seen the consequences of not having this type of course be standard in our high schools throughout North America. Um, and, And that's why we're here today to talk about sort of the consequences of not having one. And the problems that we've both seen are basically begging the schools and our communities to implement some sort of Jewish sexual ethic and sexual education in our schools.
0: Once again, there's a lot there. I want to go back to one thing that Bracha said before I go further and talk about what you said regarding this course in elementary school, because that is very, (laughs) very early. And I was asking about a high school course. And in elementary school, most kids might not even know what you're talking about if you were to mention the word a sexual ethic or talk about intimacy. So what kind of course was it, and why was it so valuable?
1: It was an experimental course that was done. We didn't quite use those terms. It was done through the school, but it wasn't done in the frame of Judaism. It was really done through the frame of education of, we need to teach our students basic body parts. We need to teach them about safety and about communication. And that's really what it was. Uh, I remember I shared the story with Adira sitting, they would split us up. It was five boys and five girls with both parents. And that was the expectation. And I would be sitting there with my father and we literally, they took out charts and we had to identify body parts. Sitting next to my father, so squeamish, but it just created a healthy attitude towards me in terms of using the proper language and proper words. And each week had a different focus about around, really just the conversations and they never use the word sexual ethic they never use the word intimacy but they did use the word sex they did use different and they were very descriptive in terms of body parts and just in terms of taking care of ourselves and i think that that was the that was really the focus about educating us opening ourselves up to what our bodies should be and what should, what's healthy and what's not healthy uh the school i believe did it for another Round and then there was not enough parent interest and it kind of petered out. And I do think that from a young age, when you instill in students a healthy attitude, then I think they grow up with that healthy attitude and with that comfort of, I can talk about, there are people in the world, be it my parents, being an educator, that within a healthy way with boundaries and comfort, Uh, There's someone who I can talk to and I can ask my questions to and I can share things to know, is this typical, is this not typical, should I be experiencing this, Uh, to really create just a healthy attitude, which then you bring into your own marriage, into your own relationship, and you're able to communicate with your partner.
0: That's really amazing and fascinating. The one question I have about it, though, when you say within boundaries... How do you teach kids at that age exactly what those boundaries are? In other words, listening to it, it sounds so healthy with the one caveat that I'd be afraid, again, not as an expert, but just listening to it as a layperson, that kids wouldn't understand boundaries. And now by saying that there's no difference between, so to speak, private parts and public parts, we talk about all of them, that maybe that could lead to some negative consequences.
1: Well, there was an understanding throughout that there are things that we talk about in a public setting And things that we talk about within an educational setting and things that we share with the public at large and things that we don't. Um, I think my children will probably be upset with me, but I know that there were time periods. Um, We're very open in my house in terms of words. (laughs) Shocking. And there were time periods where my kids would go around very publicly and ask me, you know, about people's body parts. And I would teach them that there's a time, you know, that's our Jewish, that's our Jewish ethic, Kol V eight. There's a time and a place to talk about it. You can ask mommy. We talk about these things in a more private setting and not in a more public setting. So they, they did em- emphasize that. And I think that that's also something that I got from home and from my teachers that I could ask the questions and there was always a proper context for it.
0: We are going to talk about consequences I still want to talk a little bit more about this potential course. Adira, in theory, if you were to run such a course or to create a curriculum for such a course, and now let's talk about high school students, okay. what do you think should be included in that course? What sorts of things should they be exposed to that you think right now they're perhaps not being exposed to enough?
2: Well, like Bracha mentioned, I think it's very different for ninth, ninth graders versus twelfth graders. You know, your twelfth graders, you're preparing them to be leaving the cocoon of their community, uh, who knows where they're going. Yes, they're maybe going to seminary, but after that, you know, they're out in the world. And so I think it, it would have to be tailored to each stage of life in high school. I do unfortunately think that we'd be having to do catch-up. I, I don't think it's enough to just say high school. I, I think what Bracha is saying, starting in lower school and middle school. But if we're looking for just a high school program now, I think it so much depends on, is there anything in the middle school Was there anything in elementary school? Do they use body parts? What's the language in the school? Has there been anything through the school so far? You know, some schools have really great, excellent programs on the education of their kids, their prepubescent teens, and and some don't. So I think it's sort of very dependent upon each community. But I think starting with education and safety and hygiene all the way until like a full course of sex ed. And I think this touches upon the podcast with Yoetze Tova and Olivia Friedman and Rabbi Simkovich. What they had mentioned, especially um, Olivia, that if we are only teaching abstinence, we are not actually doing our children a favor, um, abstinence-only education. And so I think we have to kind of run the full gamut. So I think also what's very important to start with
1: in addition to safety and hygiene, is really the communication piece, because a lot around intimacy in general is around communication. I know I do a session with my callers that I teach around intimacy, and I and even throughout my Tarat Hamishbacha courses, really the foundation of the strong relationship, the foundation of a strong marriage is around communication. And those are really important skills to teach at a young age, to teach, to communicate about what you like, what you don't like. And they don't, it doesn't have to be when you start with the communication piece. I know we do some in high school, which we'll get to uh, here at Central. The beginning pieces are around communication. You have a difficult situation and you need to communicate with somebody else just to really learn how to effectively communicate with your friends, effectively communicate with your teachers. And then long-term, you bring that into your marriage where you can, or your really, and other relationships where you can continue to communicate. I think that that's something that's very important. I think also talking about pleasure And I'm not talking about sexual pleasure per se, I'm talking about the pleasure of eating a fruit that you like, the pleasure of the sun on your face, that we appreciate pleasure, we're able to verbalize pleasure, and we don't look at it as something that's insignificant. And I think that ability to talk about that in contexts where it's not, the stakes are not so high, I think leads to an ability to communicate about it when the stakes are higher and when it is more important to talk about pleasure. I know we have this impression that couples walk away with that. They can't talk about sex in the midst of when they're doing something. And I think that communication is actually the most important during that time period. Uh, And that's why I think the foundation of talking about communication or teaching communication is really important.
2: Yeah, I'd like to jump on and say two things on um, what Bracha said. So I think in terms of education, what you said about understanding their bodies and just how your body functions, but also your ownership of your body. I think that starts again in lower school. Something we say in my house is if a sibling is touching you, not inappropriately, like sexually, but if a sibling is picking you up or if there's a kid at school who thinks you're so cute and is picking you up, but you're five and you don't want to be picked up, my kids will say, it's my body and I don't want to be picked up. And even using that language, um, I was a guidance counselor at a lower school recently. And we taught that to our kindergartners and our first graders and even teachers modeling that to students at such a young age. You know, a lot of times young students would run up to me and give me a hug or I was recently pregnant and they would just come and touch my, my belly. And we would talk about, hey, it's my body. So it's cool, but you need to ask before you touch. Starting already at that young age sets a really great foundation for our students to understand that our bodies are our own and we get to decide when they're touched and how they're touched. And then, in terms of what Bracha said, pleasure, you know, Bracha, I never really thought about pleasure in that way in terms of its connection to communication and how we teach our community this, but knowing what we like and our preferences, and I don't mean gender or sexual preferences per se, but I think starting out teaching our students in high school, what is my love language? What are things I like to do for my friends? Like if I'm someone who loves decorating their locker on their birthday. So what kind of language, what kind of expressor am I? And for students to more deeply get to know themselves also is a foundation for being an intimate partner with someone. Um, So I think it starts also with educating our students on like their own psyche and their own existence as humans that includes communication and pleasure and sexuality and halacha.
0: That actually leads to my next question, and I want to ask you exactly what place halacha has in this form of education, because both of you, in describing this course, have conspicuously made halacha not the primary focus, at least as it sounds to me. And in fact, Adira, you said, of course, also we have to talk about abstinence, but that's really not the primary focus. So I'm wondering where the halachot of sex and intimacy come into this course, if they come in at all. That's not a criticism, it's a question. Adira, we'll start with you. What do you think?
2: Um, it's a challenge. Um, I I really liked what Dr. Rifka Schwartz said and helped me out with directly quoting her that we want our students to be halachic, ethical, and safe. And I think that applies when you look at creating a course on intimacy and um, sexual ethics and halacha, right, that we are obligated We don't want to fail our children by not educating them in those three categories. And we're orthodox. We believe in the halachic system and we we must teach it no matter how complicated it is. And yet also give our children the knowledge they need to make informed decisions to keep themselves safe. And the danger that some say that, oh, it could lead to promiscuity. I, I don't think it has enough weight and I don't think the, the cons, if there are any, outweigh the pros. Just from our own personal experience, Bracha and I both, we've seen the consequences, and they're not pretty. So that's proof in and of itself.
0: I understand. Bracha, how about you? What do you think?
1: So I would say that halacha is a part of that curriculum for pre-pandemic uh, we have had a curriculum at Central, we called it Torah Values, Intimacy Education for Women. We partnered with Yocheva Dubo a number of years ago. It was a pilot program and we continue to shape it and form it. And every year, had a, there was a halakhic component. So when we talked about pleasure, we talked about that from a halachic perspective. How does the Torah view pleasure? The fact that, right, there's an idea that a nazir has to bring a, a sin offering. And one of the explanations is, is that he didn't take pleasure in God's world. The fact that we make brachot on food because we're supposed to take and appreciate God's food. We have mitzvot to eat. We have mitzvot to have simcha, right? Mitzvah gadola leopa simcha. that pleasure is something that's important. And so we look at those instances, and again, not necessarily through the realm of sexuality, but through the realm of the Torah lens. Everything that is done, that I teach, is done through the lens of a halachic framework, because I am very committed to the halacha. And I do know that that does pose challenges for some, when things that they want to do clash with halacha, or things that we understand today about relationships are different you know i I am curious to know how much the tanaim and amoraim and even the Rishonim really communicated with their spouses how important communication played because you read some of the stories of their interactions and you really wonder and we know how important communication is uh and i wonder if that led to certain understandings of relationships with led to certain realities that we see reflected Um, And I will also say that sometimes we can look at those stories and there's actually a lot to learn from the stories that are in the Gemara or that are presented to us about relationships and say, how does that fit in with our reality? And sometimes it fits in very well. And sometimes we also have to understand the context of those stories to know, and I say this often, that the idea that intimacy and procreation were two separate issues or two separate realities is a very modern concept. So when people look at that constant connection, I say, yes, because you have to look at the the context of their lives. We, maybe until 60 years ago, for us too, that was, there was really no separation between intimacy and procreation. That's a very much a modern concept. And we have to, grapple with that because the Torah is supposed to be an Eitz Chaim. It's supposed to be a living Torah. It's supposed to continue to guide us. And we have to figure out and kind of look back at the roots of what's the essence of the story? What what are the values that exist in the Gemara? How do we reconcile them with the realities that we see today and the values that we have today? Most of them the same, but a different understanding of
2: relationships. Bracha and I did a, (laughs) we ran a a session called Navigating Dating, and we used the five love languages as a guide. And we really struggled when we were trying to find stories from Tanakh that could support different ways, you know, give it, be examples of ways of communicating. Um, and the reality is, historically, that wasn't really a focus of our wonderful, great leaders, Torah giants. And Tanakh, it was, it was really hard to come by, you know? <laughs>
0: I understand. That's actually a great segue into a almost a side point that will lead into our discussion of consequences. But I am curious, some of the communications I received after the last panel discussion about sexual education in high school included a criticism that that exact thing that you mentioned, quoting Dr. Schwartz, of separating halacha and ethics, implying that those are two separate things, that there's a halachic ethic of sex and a modern ethic of sex. And I'm curious what you both think about that. Because you're both obviously saying that we have to integrate them together. As you said, bracha, it's an eitzchayim, it's the way we live, it's the the lens through which we look at the world. But as you're saying now, Adira, it's not always so simple. So what would you answer that criticism when we say that sex has to be halachic and ethical, implying that that's not always the same thing?
1: It is a challenge. I think that on some level, there may be ways to reconcile and say that they're not totally different. But I do think that if we look at other areas of life, Rav Aaron Lachenstein has an article about ethics outside of the Torah, and that, right, we know from the stories, even in the Gemara, that if we had not had the Torah, we would have learned ethics from the animals around us. So there are a lot of ethics that exist, right? And then what happens after Matan Torah, the fact that we do have the ethics from the Torah. I do think that there are ways sometimes to reconcile the sexual ethic that exists in the world and the Torah ethic. Uh, I think if you look at certain sources, it's there. And then other times, I think that we do have a real challenge in reconciling the two. And even what I brought up about communication and what Adira talked about with regard to communication, that was not a value that we see in the Torah, in, the, in, in Tanakh, in the Gemara, but we know that that's a value nowadays in relationships. There are ideas also that present themselves in terms of a woman's role in intimacy, And that, you know, sometimes that she should be a little bit more passive, whereas I don't necessarily think that that's something that in the world now is promoted. So how do we reconcile that with our reality? And the truth is, I will tell you, there's so many contradictory stories that you read and so many contradictory areas uh, presented that I do think that depending on how we define sexual ethic, which I think is very important for us to go ahead and define, and I also don't think we have a clear definition of what that means, because one person's sexual ethic could be another person's sexual ethic, we may really be able to reconcile the different definitions with some parts of the Torah, and there are areas where we may not be able to.
2: You know, I think this is not the only area in Judaism where we're like, oh, mm, it's a struggle, grappling with modern times and our values and torah ethics and values this is not what oh a new this is not the only area which we're sort of trying to make sense of our modern world and having the etz torah living within us you know uh, so such is being a at least for me this is how i define being a modern orthodox jew it's like the struggle
0: i understand that so
2: i'm here to struggle with everyone
0: I know that Rabbi Walter Wurzberger, I believe he was quoting Rav Salvechik. when he said this, he would say that halacha is a floor, not a ceiling when it comes to ethics and morals. I think that's an important point here. I want to move on to the consequences because you both have been involved in teaching programs together about intimacy and communication, as you mentioned before, Adira. So can we start off by talking about some of the consequences of people not having couples not having individuals not having the kind of education that you're advocating here Adira what do you what have you seen?
2: Yeah uh, I get a, I get a little bit frustrated when I talk about this because it makes me so it makes me so angry to be honest um, to be very upfront with our listeners, uh, I'm a social worker but I'm also just a person and for some reason people have reached out to me throughout my life to get reassurance, to confess, to ask questions, to get resources for their intimacy and sexual experiences or their fears surrounding those topics. And to me, that's already a problem, right? Like I'm just little me, you know, who happens to be comfortable talking about these topics. Why are people turning to someone who they know is comfortable and confident talking about sexuality isn't a sex therapist, isn't a YOSET, isn't a doctor. I'm so happy. I'm thrilled. And this is my passion to connect people to the resources they need. It's what I want to do with my life. It's something I've always wanted to be a part of. And I've tried to figure out a way. And yet it speaks to a really large problem. This is not okay that people are like pulling me aside, not even friends, but like friends of friends or people who are my periphery circles or uh, you know an advisor on a Shabbaton I just met who's about to get married who is asking me if it's okay if her soon- to- be Hassan is complimenting her looks. Like you know that's almost in, inappropriate that she's confiding with me and I'm so glad that she she did. But I've had Khatan uh, reach out to me about his sex being painful for his his new bride. what should he do. Um, I eventually connected them to the sex therapist. I had a kala text me on her wedding night. Is it gonna hurt? Like that's not okay. It's not okay. I've had people reach out about performance anxiety, either for themselves or for their spouse. I've had friends reach out post Shana Rishona about questions about how to just clean up. And so people are are scared. And I think Rabbi um, Simkovich talked about this: the big fear that everyone has about these topics. It makes them so nervous. And Something that Brock and I have spoken a lot about and something that I've been thinking about a lot is that from my, even from my own experience, a lot of these nice, you know, from girls and guys, they don't want to Google. They know that lots of things that they don't want to see might pop up, but they have questions and they're afraid of being shamed, of being seen as not normal, as being seen as not religious. These are emotions I don't want people to feel. I want them to feel comfortable to ask their questions, to feel normal and validated because they are. And I think that's a huge consequence of not educating and not normalizing from a young age, talking about sexuality and intimacy.
0: It sounds almost like the problem isn't so much not that they don't know the answers, more as you're describing it that they're afraid to even ask the questions. It's that the conversation isn't even available to them. They don't even know how to start a conversation. So that sounds like the biggest benefit, if I'm understanding you correctly, of such a course would simply be normalizing the conversation.
2: Yeah, I think I think there definitely there are there is a lack of information. I don't want to negate that. But from what I've gotten, and Bracha could probably speak to the lack of information, is, you know, when I sat down to think about what I wanted to get across today. I titled my piece of paper, Confessions and Questions, and I was like, oh, that's a good title, uh, because that's what I've experienced. I might steal it. You go, <laughs> go for it. Maybe <laughs> I'll write a book when I'm uh, a little older, and I'll title that. Um, people, the, the main thing- Then you consume me. Uh, no, <laughs> please, please. We'll write it together. Um, <laughs> people come to me with confessions, questions, seeking guidance, and reassurance. Those are my four sort of takeaways as I look back on the past, you know, let's say- 17 years of sort of monitoring questions that come in my WhatsApp, email, inbox, et cetera.
0: Bracha, how about you? What consequences of not having a course like this or not having this kind of education available have you seen?
2: So I
1: see, I know Adira talked about not the inability to ask questions. I really see unrealistic expectations that go into a relationship. Uh, I think that there's an expectation that guys will just know what to do they'll know how to pleasure their wives, they'll know, they'll just know. And the truth is, that's not the case. Also, I'm not as aware, I I know, I I deal mostly with the women, but I don't know what education the men are getting. Is somebody talking to them? Uh, I I don't know what messages they're getting about pleasure, uh, and what expectations are placed on them. Uh, And then, you know, what some of the things that those people who are Googling, what unrealistic expectations are being presented to them about what their wives should look like and what unrealistic expectations are being created about what intimacy actually looks like and what pleasure looks like. And I very much worry that we don't have a counter within the Orthodox community. We don't have the conversations with the men about how what they're seeing online is not reality. And I know that I've spoken to uh, Dr. Dubow about this, about what she has seen in her own practice and the the results of that couple's coming and women saying, I never wanted to do that. And the man said, but isn't that just what people do? And it's not, it's just what he's seen because he doesn't, he doesn't, hasn't had the conversation. What I also see is, well, also a fear, I will say. I know I always do a session on intimacy, Uh, I wish that there were more Jewish books written. I know that Tali Rosenbaum's book is excellent. There's a book that I always use uh, by Dr. Hilda Hutcherson. It's called What Your Mother Never Told You About Sex. (laughs) And I use that as my guide. And I really wish that it was almost a halachic guide that would go aside, but that's what I use in my classes when I teach. And what happens is what I'm trying to do, and I say this every time, is I'm trying to fit in an hour and a half what these women never learned and I can't do that and the truth is I constantly stop because I could talk about this because I'm very passionate about this subject and about the educational component and creating a normalcy and a healthy attitude towards sex and I stop and I say what questions do you have and they look so bewildered that they even say I don't really know even what to ask And some of it's because they don't have a point of reference, they don't know, and sometimes they'll ask after, but it's really, it's shock. And it's, wait, do we really talk about this? Am I really supposed to be talking about this? Am I really supposed to be asking you these questions? I don't have a frame of reference for this area of my life to be able to ask a question, uh, to be able to engage in a conversation. And I'll see that. In their first year of marriage, and I'll see that later on in terms of, I know when I speak about sex, those are always the most well-attended shirim that I give. I think most of the so can say that. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter the age. I've had shirim, I've had women who are significantly older come, and I'm curious, and they say, well, I don't know what, edu- I never got an education in this. I-, I learned along the way, and I'm curious to see what younger people are hearing. Uh, so I-, 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 I see that, really, that lack of communication sometimes also between the spouses, because again, are we supposed to communicate How important is pleasure? Can I tell him that I don't like something? You know, and then the expectations of mikvah night that it's supposed to be amazing. And then what if you're not in the mood? Are you allowed to ever say no? Uh, You know, consent, which is something that we talk about. This is where I think we actually can see a a real reconciliation of a Jewish ethic Mm -hmm. and a a sexual ethic. Consent in halacha is so important, right? The concept of marital rape in modern society is so new when it has been there throughout. The Gemara talks about how it is automatic grounds for divorce. A husband comes home, he must wake and his wife is sleeping, he must gain her consent. And that's something that's very important, but I don't know that we talk about that. So women, and women feel like they can never say no. You know, and then, Where are they sharing things? I'm part of a group called Jewish Women Talk About Intimacy. The stories that I read there, my heart breaks. I'm married for 10 years, I'm married for 15 years, I never had anybody to talk to. What does everybody think? And they're all trying to be anonymous. And it is, for me, it is so sad and it is clear to me that it's because of lack of education unrealistic expectations also that are placed on women to get married at a certain age, to marry a certain type of guy, to be a certain type of person. And then you come into your bedroom and you, you're just you, you don't know what to do and you're tired and you feel pressured. Uh, so and I think shame. I, just,
2: I, I have to say it, Bracha. we spoke yeah. about this. Like there's so much shame in asking for guidance on these topics, which is why people love the anonymous Facebook post. <laughs> right.
0: I mean, it's also why, frankly, the existence of such a thing as yotzot halacha is so important. I realize that's more of a halachic area, but the very fact that for so long, if a woman had a question about her intimate life, the main address would be a male rabbi. I just think that this is such an important innovation that has happened through nishmat. I just I can't say enough about it because if nothing else, that. But this goes way beyond halacha. Obviously, it goes into communication and education in general. I
2: think also I a hundred percent agree having yoatzot is is life-changing for myself. I, I I knew when I was getting married that I was going to be utilizing the yoatzot and I was going to avoid asking a rabbi as much as possible because of my own comfort. Uh, Bracha was actually, you were my first yoatzot that I called. I don't know if you know that. However, and I say this with the most respect possible, I don't think it's fair to put this, burden on the yoat so that they're going to be the halachic advisors the therapists the medical advisors and this the they're going to be in charge of, of sex ed for all of <laughs> Israel like that's that's not okay it's sort of like similarly I feel like rabbis we have this expectation of pulpit rabbis that they're going to be our savior in all departments of caring for a congregation and I don't think it's fair I think we I think the Yoat so need other people to share the burden of educating, our children on intimacy on jewish values around sexuality and intimacy and, and re- relationships and i think that's what we're all trying to do here but they can't make up for it in an hour and a half class they can't it's not fair
0: well adira i'd actually take what you said and flip it i okay. agree with what you said i think the problem can be equally put on the rabbis and perhaps Yosot i don't know but certainly i have seen this among rabbis okay not that they can't do it themselves but that they believe that they have the expertise in areas where they have absolutely no training. Rabbi! Yeah, I mean, we're talking about people who, because (laughs) I have smicha, therefore, I am now an expert in sex ed beyond the halachot. A person who's learned halachot tarat mishpacha, halachot nida, does not make him inherently a sex counselor unless he's been trained that way. And that's a real, real problem. People stepping way outside of their lane.
1: Right, I'm gonna add another consequence that then perpetuates itself because we don't have the education at a young age, we then are uncomfortable talking about the topic with our own children. And then our children don't learn. Uh, I know that uh, I've given a few talks to parents about how to talk to their children about sex. And I've interviewed parents and I've said to them, what do you talk to your kids about? And there are some who say, I do this, and I you know, I speak to my children, we have a conversation, we use a book. I find that there are just an equal amount usually more who feel, oh, the school is going to do it. I'm not comfortable. And then if the parents aren't doing it and the school isn't doing it, then we're not teaching. And what we're doing is we're just, then the next generation of people are again, not comfortable, not talking about it. And we haven't created this. We have not created a positive cycle of communication.
2: Yeah. I was just thinking yesterday after I was, you know, I was thinking about the podcast two weeks ago and this one, I wonder what it would be like if parent, the parent body would rebel if the end of fifth grade, it was a mandatory session for parents, this is crazy already, for parents and their fifth graders or parents and their, um, you know, rising sixth grader to come in for, I was trying to think of a catchy title, like parent partnership and protecting our prepubescent children something like that, where you would have like a breakout session for kids and a breakout session for the adults. and you'd come back together and you'd do some sort of like, uh, I don't know, have some sort of icebreaker where they could privately each parent and the child talk about some sort of topic related to intimacy and and puberty and sexuality, and then they'd go home. But it would be something that was requ- almost required um, if parent body would rebel or not. But I thought that could be <laughs> A nice way to get parents involved um, and sort of be like, okay, we're all going to do this awkward thing together. I don't know. It could
0: be very interesting. I go back to something which I think (laughs) it was Rabbi Simcovich said about that, which is one of the problems is unfortunately the political reality of schools do answer to a parent body, and if the parents aren't happy, then the people in charge won't be able to do it. It's not as simple as we're demanding this happens. (laughs) Like, you know, I went to Maimonides. Rav Soloveitchik Mm. founded Maimonides. I am guessing that if Rav Soloveitchik had said we're going to do this because he was Rav Soloveitchik, there probably would have been, even then maybe there would be people who would get angry, but he probably could have gotten away with it. Most people don't have that same stature to be able to do something which would be seen as radical and controversial.
1: All right, one can dream.
0: <laughs> we can dream, though.
1: I think sometimes, also, when we think about the consequences of not having a class, what happens is the education that our young people have is usher, usher, usher. And then suddenly they're forced to make that transition on the first night of their wedding to not only is it not usher, not only is it allowed, but it's actually a mitzvah. And I think that that psychological transition, if we don't properly prepare our young people, can end up having consequences on the positivity of their of their sex life. Uh, and that's a big problem.
2: Yeah, I have to say as someone who is very comfortable talking about these topics and always have been, I remember at my wedding, looking around and thinking like, this is so strange, this transition. And I remember feeling nervous. And it was like the first time I felt nervous around intimacy. And sort of, I felt like it was unsneas, the way in which like everyone knows, like the mitzvah that you're supposed to do tonight. And it just felt so not proper. Um, And I'm wondering if there is a way to alleviate, I think by decreasing the stigma that yes, it's preferred to have sex that night to, if we alleviate the pressure, I think also our community could be a little bit more modest I don't know. I'm not sure how to like sum that up. But I think it's sort of, uh, it makes me uncomfortable that people joke about like the wedding night. I feel like that's not sneeze, but you hear these like 20 year olds, 19 year olds, 21, 22, 23 year olds joking and sort of talking about the wedding night in a way that makes me feel like it doesn't honor and doesn't respect the holiness and the almost like the heaviness of entering into a sexually active committed marriage.
0: I certainly agree with that. You know, The Gemara even says that you're not allowed to talk about what happens on the wedding night in order to further that element of tzniyut. Along with that, I just want to mention that Rabbi Eliezer Melamed Shlita recently published a book in which he suggests that the couple actually not be intimate, meaning sexual intercourse. They should be intimate. They should be together, but should not have sexual intercourse for a week. That's what he says. Of course, he's meanwhile being put in Cherem by half the rabbis in Israel. So oh. it could be he's thinking about the same ideas.
1: Right. I'll right. also say a conversation, I think, for another time is the attitude of, towards sex in Israel and the rabbinate and what I learned as a Yoetzet and the attitude in the United States, at least amongst the modern Orthodox rabbis, I think that they're very different and they lead to. And I think that's part of Rav Malamed's approach. That's very different in the United States. But again, podcast for another. Yeah, it looks Let's like we have another episode
0: coming up then. OK, I want to get to Kala classes because when you were talking Brukha, a moment ago about what is included in kala classes. And this gets exactly to the point that Adir is making about training for them. What should be included in kala classes? And I ask this as a Chatan teacher myself. As Adir said, not everybody is trained beyond the halachot. Some of the negative consequences of kala classes, people talk, I was never taught this, I was never taught that, I was never taught that. Well, if I want to play devil's advocate, I could say, of course not. She's a, she's a kala teacher. She's not your sex ed teacher. She's not supposed to be teaching you that. She's teaching you hilchot nida. Why are you expecting her to be the person to catch you up on everything that you haven't been taught throughout those years, not having this class? Let's talk about a situation now. We are now in a world where most people have not had these classes that you are very, very admirably recommending. You don't have that class. What should be the kala teacher's responsibility when it comes to teaching a kala?
1: So I do think, and there has been more training done now for Kala teachers, uh, both by Nishmat and also the Eden Center in Israel. Uh, And this is a portion of their training. I know that I have come in. I do a session, not just with the Kala about intimacy. I do a session with the couple. That's a requirement if you want to learn with me. And it is a session that is based on communication between the couple it's role-playing scenarios it's a little awkward it's a little uncomfortable it talks about expectations i frame intimacy i actually don't do the intimacy piece together because i don't know him and i feel like if i don't know the chatan it's going to be a more uncomfortable conversation and he'll be less amenable to the conversation Uh, we talk about finances we talk about fighting And I feel that that's something very important for me to be able to see red flags. And I do that, I do when often, uh, when Nishmat does their training cycle, I come in, and I talk to them about that session that I do. And I actually give them my curriculum with my cases. And they've given, many of the women over the years have given me advice about how to improve it. And I think that that's something that's very, uh, very important that needs to be part of college classes. And I do think the college teachers should have some basic training in intimacy and halacha and the halachic sources and that that should be a piece of the kala class because we're talking about tarad ha which touches on so many areas of intimacy i do think that that's a basic that needs to be in the kala class and she doesn't have to be an expert because she's not claiming to be an expert what she's doing is she's opening up the conversation she's giving them guidance and she also has resources Right, as you had, so, we're often taught where our limits are. I say to women a lot of times, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a therapist. I find myself saying those words. Sometimes it's a reminder to me not to overstep my own bounds, but it's also for women to recognize that I have training. There's a limit at some point in my training. And I'd like to refer you, refer you to somebody else, right? Adira talked about those. Uh, references or those referrals that you can, resources. So that's also something that's important for a Yoetze to have at her fingertips to go ahead or in a college class to go ahead and share. But I do think talking about the relationship and talking about intimacy cannot be separated from Tzara Hamashbacha. In fact, the lens that I teach Tzara is often through the lens of communication in the relationship and that Tarah to enables communication around a challenging topic, which opens up the lines of communication for less challenging topics. And then it becomes a very positive communication cycle.
2: I would like to say, and I I know I'm quoting Olivia a lot. I think it's unfair, like I said before, to expect our Yowatso to come in and be the saviors. And I -I 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 think, yes, teaching Kala classes for through the lens of intimacy and educating our khalas about healthy sexual and intimate relationships is so important. And, and I think overall they do a great job of it. Um, There's also something to be said about the personality sometimes of a halachic advisor, of who you want as your halachic advisor may not be the person that you want to talk to about, you know, issues in the bedroom. And some people will have a harder time than others. And sometimes it'll work really well and a that will have that ability to make um, a person want to open up both about personal issues and about halachic issues. But it's not always the case. And I guess I said, I don't think it's fair to expect them to be the be all and end all.
0: So what would you do nowadays for those people who have not had the proper education? What would you suggest they do?
2: Well, Rach and I are working <laughs> on creating a pre-Kala-Kala course to help normalize talking about all of these topics, starting from understanding yourself to actually being in a relationship and communicating in a relationship, as well as intimacy in a relationship and consent that goes around that and the halakha that goes around that as a precursor to kala classes to start the education. Um, and I have a few things up my sleeve that I'm hoping to pull out eventually um, to help there be a resource for young men and women to get referrals to the proper education or help they need um, without feeling shame.
0: I have a couple more questions. I know we don't have that much time, but Brecha, I want to quickly ask, you said you look for red flags. If you do see a red flag, what do you do? What's the plan then?
1: So depending on my relationship with her, I may speak to her. What I've often done is I've called their Masada Kadushan. Uh, to see if, and sometimes I have been successful because the Masada Kadushan is already aware. Sometimes I have uh, spoken to someone else who I know is who knows them, and we have referred them to therapy. Um, There's one situation that I remember very clearly was a huge red flag. Uh, I I could see the abuse in front of me, and I called the Masada Kadushan. There's abuse before marriage already. Before marriage, you could see in the way that he was already controlling. Uh, he didn't like the skirt she was wearing and he did not let her, did not let it go that whole night. And the way he spoke to her, I actually had to ask him, ask him to lower his voice at points in my house. I My hair was up back of my neck. I actually wanted to, to ask him to leave, um, but I was nervous for her if I did that because then she wouldn't feel that she could talk to me. I did, in a roundabout way, bring up to her at some point, do you have any concern in your relationship? And very quickly and defensively, she said, absolutely not. Everything's wonderful. I spoke to the Masada Kadushan, and to this day, that weighs on my shoulders because he said to me, I know it, we all know it, and there's absolutely nothing that we can do about it. And they moved outside of the New York area. And uh, I changed the way I do some of my Kala classes as a result of that, um, which is a whole other discussion. So I will reach out to resources, but it's it's not it's not perfect and it doesn't always work the way that I, I, I think it needs to.
0: That's a very troubling and upsetting story. And once again, it highlights the need for proper training. Okay. We're almost out of time, but I'm going to throw out one final question, which is almost a statement. I just want to get your reaction to this. And I'm going to guess that I know what it is, but I have been told by some people, that the entire purpose of Khatan classes, because we've talked about Kalak classes, but the entire purpose of Khatan classes is just so that the husband doesn't look stupid in front of his wife. Okay. Please take that and run with it and let me know what you think. Adira, what do you think of that?
2: It's so insulting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. Oh, it's a partnership. I mean right? You're entering a marriage, a partnership. You both have to keep these halachot. It's not just a burden on the woman to keep, it's not, you know, that's not fair in any way, shape or form. And for many men, they need the support of being able, this is going to open up a Pandora's box, but to use their body in a way that is permissible and pleasurable. I feel so bad for jewish men i think there's a lot of shame in wrapped up in their anatomy and i think it probably messes with their um relationship with their body to a degree that we haven't talked about that's still not talked about i think as it's like no pun intended a less sexy topic but um i i i I wish that chatan classes could be a safe space to help the young men navigate their transition from like a sore 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 to all right enjoy um and then in terms of like the actual halacha, like I think, again, it's like saying like if, if in your relationship, let's say the husband is the one who does all the food shopping. And so you're like, okay, I don't really have to know the halacha of like different in, in in the grocery store. I don't really have to know the halachas of, of running the kitchen because you do it. And I don't do it because we, this is how we've divided our roles. So you do that and I do this and that. I don't have to know about it. Like what? no. We are a halachic family. We're going to know the halachot. Some of us are going to be more involved in some parts of it versus the other. Like, and then don't even get me started about you have to learn how to, like what Bracha said about pleasuring your, your partner. Uh, you you think these nice from boys are going to be like how to make my wife orgasm? That's not happening. Okay. All right, someone else because I'm it's, no, just go for it, Bracha. What chatan classes? First, I'll say that
1: <laughs> uh, because they are few and far between. Um, at least from what I find with the women that I teach, um, many of them are not taking chatan classes. Or if they do, it's a one-time maybe with the Masada Kedushan. There are some who do take. I mean, so I'm surprised I to hear was- that.
0: I'm a chatan teacher, so obviously I only know the people who come to me, and they're taking chatan
1: classes. So I wonder if there's a difference between Israel and America in terms of the availability of chatan classes. If you're not at Yeshiva University and YU, they offer chatan classes and in New York City they offer there are but I, I wonder if outside of those confines if you're not affiliated particularly with the university with yeshiva university that you'll have the opportunity to take a chatan class yeah
2: my, my husband and I he was living in Baltimore when we were engaged and there was like one person available to do chatan classes he had no relationship with him prior you know, so he's like walking into this guy's house, no relationship, and he's supposed to learn halacha and also talk about marriage and intimacy with a complete stranger. You can imagine how that went.
0: Although I will say that the fact that he's a stranger, I understand, I understand the problem. But on the other hand, if he's the teacher and he can develop a relationship with the person, and he's sit and learn together for 5, 10, 15, 20 sessions, whatever they do, maybe that's okay.
2: But that's halachic advisor mixing with mentor.
0: I hear the yeah. problem. I really do. OK, I'm yeah. sorry, sorry bracha. Bracha, yes, go or... ahead.
1: So first, I hope that there would be more opportunities for Khatan classes, but I don't think that they do the men or the couples a service. I don't think there does need to. I agree with Adira. There does need to fo- be a focus on halacha, perhaps not as much as with the women. On the kala classes, but there does need to be a basic focus on what happens. And I do think there needs to be a focus on both the emotional aspect of the relationship and the physical aspect of the relationship. So the, in the training of the khatan teacher, I think that those two pieces are very, very important that need to be there. And I don't think that they're there enough. Um, and I think that it's a big problem.
0: Well, Adir Batwinik and Bracha Rutner, this has been very enlightening, even if it's very troubling at the same time. And I'm very glad, I'm sure our listeners are very glad the two of you are working on trying to rectify some of these problems. And hopefully, hopefully we can make a dent to make some sort of change in the Jewish world on some level by bringing some awareness of this problem, of the fact that it is a problem and that schools should be teaching, parents should be talking, and hopefully teachers should be teaching with the proper training. Thank you both for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you so much.
0: Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit JewishCoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences